Take your Bibles, if you would, and look with me at Luke chapter 7. Luke's Gospel chapter 7. In the, uh, one of those hymns we sang, there was a great line in there, For nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's Lamb. This is, of course, all that we've been hearing over and over again as we've studied the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. That salvation is in him alone and, and there has to be, when someone comes to Christ, a, a distancing of themselves from any idea that they are good enough for God. They must outright reject the notion that they bring any human goodness acceptable enough to God. Can't mingle it with faith. It can't mingle with any other uh, imagined merit. When you come to Christ... You must say with the songwriter, for nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. Believing in Jesus Christ for salvation means that I utterly entrust myself and my acceptability before God to all that Jesus has accomplished and provided for the sinner. And so in doing so, I then conversely am called to abandon any belief that I'm good enough to merit God's favor. So in conversion, you're confessing that very thing. You're confessing that everything you've ever accomplished in life, any, anything intrinsic to you or anything that is done by you is utterly worthless to save your soul. Many of you were with us when we studied the book of Romans and we saw this over and over again as the Apostle Paul began to drive home the point that sinners cannot save themselves they cannot atone for their sin. They, they must come to the end of themselves and wholly entrust themselves to the person and work of Christ alone for their forgiveness. When you're giving the gospel to someone, as I said in that study back then, there is a tendency that when we tell someone about hope in Jesus Christ, that we minimize or we're tempted to minimize the self-denial that they must come to. We are, uh, at times, uh, tempted to soften the message that not only must they come to a hopeful Savior in faith, but they must reject personal merit. They must denounce themselves in the sense that they bring anything to God that is worthy. Sometimes you immediately give someone the gospel, and, or you give someone the gospel, and you're immediately tempted to soften it, to somehow allow them to take interest in the gospel, but at the same time still hold on to something of themselves before God, some perspective of themselves, some obligation God has to them, some sense of their own merit, maybe even the, the uh, punishment of themselves in order to merit their own salvation. This is a mistake. What people come away with in sentimental evangelistic Uh, messages is the idea that they can add some religious sentiment uh, to a little bit of their belief in the details of the life of Christ, or they can add some activity or some sense of themselves that gives them uh, enough of an extra edge at the judgment, and so it'll be a mixture of what Jesus did and what Jesus said in his word and a little bit of Bible, a little bit of family heritage, a little bit of intellect, a little bit of personal goodness. That's what they believe. Nevertheless, the scriptures teach, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It, that is salvation, is the gift of God. And it is not of works, lest any man should boast. So if you went before the throne of God in the judgment, if there's any moment that you imagine on your way there that you're going to have even a small measure of merit to boast Something you came up with, something that was intrinsic to you, something you achieved, you're not saved. Because a Christian knows, a genuine Christian knows, with spirit-produced conviction, that we must abandon any sense of self-worthiness before God. And a true Christian has, indeed, in putting their faith in Christ, abandoned such a notion. Now, in the narrative of Jesus' life, Luke 
is putting all of these narratives together to send that message that there is a true faith in Christ that saves and there is a false faith. There is a true disciple with particular fruit and there is a false disciple. There is a true teacher of the gospel and there's a false teacher of the gospel. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, we've just finished studying it in chapter 6, Jesus preached on the difference between true and false disciples. True disciples have convictions about God that are different than they used to have in the world. They have a different fruit in their life that is opposite of what the flesh wants to do. They exhibit a different power. They manifest a different heart. Well, in chapter 7 and following, Luke continues on this theme, and in these first 10 verses in the narrative we're going to look at this morning, he's talking about a Gentile centurion who has great faith in contrast to God's own people Israel who have none. They had all the knowledge. It didn't do them any good. The Gentile centurion had no ultimate knowledge, and yet his heart was softened by, as we'll see, a certain sense of himself, a right sense of who he was. In um, chapter 7, 11 through 50, you have more narrative of God vindicating himself in saving Gentiles in light of Israel's rejection of his visitation. Notice verse 16 of chapter 7. Fear gripped them all. They began glorifying God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. What is Luke doing? He is setting up the contrast because, indeed, God has visited his people in the person of Christ, and Israel outright rejected him. But the Gentiles were receiving him. Notice verse 30. The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. What does that mean? They weren't repentant. They didn't come to express repentance in the baptism of John the Baptist, waiting on their Messiah. In 31 to 35, you see stubborn unbelief. Notice, Luke says, or Jesus says, to what then shall I compare the men of this generation, and what are they like? He's speaking of Israel. What shall I compare the nation of Israel to when the Messiah is on hand and they're not, getting, they're not getting it? Well, verse 32, they're like children. They sit in the marketplace and they call to one another and they say, hey, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance and we sang a dirge and you didn't weep. What does he mean? It doesn't matter what tune we play, you always do the opposite. You're not listening Then he illustrates it another way, verse 33. John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. In other words, he has the sacrificial lifestyle of a prophet, and you say he's got a demon. And then the Son of Man comes doing the opposite. He doesn't have the sacrificial lifestyle of a prophet. He eats and drinks like a normal uh, family man, and you say, oh, he's a gluttonous man and a drunkard, and he's a friend of outcasts and sinners. It doesn't matter how the truth comes. I bring it to you by John the Baptist, and you say he's got a demon. I bring it to you by the Son of Man who's who's sitting around with you, and you say, oh, he's, he's no different than a sinner. You're just not listening. All this truth, no faith. All this gospel message, no faith. All this display of God's power to attend the message, and you don't believe. Luke will then record in 36 to 50 a meeting between a Pharisee and a prostitute. The Pharisee invites Jesus to dinner to respect him as a rabbi, a local rabbi. And a prostitute whom Jesus had forgiven comes in. And there you have this collision. Why is she there? To worship Jesus because she's been forgiven and her heart is filled with love for him. Why does Simon the Pharisee do no such thing? Because he doesn't believe he needs forgiveness. He brings his own goodness. He believes that he merits God's favor. And she knows she merits none of it. Again, Luke pulls this false faith faith versus true faith to the surface. By the time you get to chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, Jesus' ministry is spoken of as beloved and supported by those who've been healed and forgiven, especially various women. Mary Magdalene, who'd been freed from demonic oppression. And by the time you get to chapter 8, verses 4 and following, Jesus goes into the parables where he explains why some people in their faith fall away 
They express faith, but they fall away. What is Luke doing here? He is beginning to, to take the sermon that Jesus taught, and he's taking accounts in Jesus' life where God providentially orchestrates circumstances to put this comparison on display. And that's what we have in chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. We have the anatomy of great faith. The anatomy of great faith. Follow along as I read the text. And then we'll just walk through it. Chapter 7, verse 1. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion's slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. And when they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I'm also a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, I say, come, and he comes. And to my slave, I say, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who'd been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Yeah, this is, this is um, amazing the way the Lord sets this whole thing up. And I just want to kind of walk through it and, and draw out the anatomy of great faith and show you by comparison why it is that those with knowledge missed it and what it informs us about the gospel itself, what to look for in someone's heart when you present the gospel, what you should be saying, what you should be dealing with, how you should be confronting issues when you bring the gospel so that it's not a sentimental gospel, a non-saving, sentimentalistic message. So the first thing you note here is the desperate need of the circumstance, the desperate need of the circumstance. Notice that the centurion has a slave, or literally in the text, a boy, sometimes translated a son. Uh, it is the word that can be uh, translated in a variety of ways, but it's more tender than just the average uh, conscripted or indentured employee. He has this house boy, this house servant, and he is sick and he's about to die. Now, the first thing Luke does in showing us the desperate practical need is he first deals with a reference to the sermon that Jesus just preached. And it is very interesting the terminology that Luke uses. Notice verse 1. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people. It's a very interesting way to open up this section. Why didn't he just say, and when the sermon was over, he went down the mountain. When he did come off the mountain, Matthew's gospel says that a whole crowd continued to follow him. So he's headed to Capernaum. And by the time you get to this story with the centurion, he's probably been in Capernaum for a while. Luke doesn't really give us all those ensuing details. But Luke gives us a very vivid opening to this part of the narrative, and in the verbal idea of this, basically he is saying, look, Jesus fully completed the preaching of the entire message he intended. Almost as if to say, look, before we talk about the practical need of the centurion in Capernaum, I want to talk about the need of the entire world and the fact that Jesus is on task. He's on task cutting a line in the sand. He does not want false followers. He cannot have people deceived about the gospel. He will not allow Jerusalem to tell people they can work their way to heaven. He will not allow the pagan cultures around North Galilee to tell people that their pagan gods are enough. He is on his task. And Luke makes mention of the fact that in preaching this sermon... There was a message to give, and it had several points, and he drew out several implications, and he wasn't going to finish until they'd heard it all. I love that. I love the fact that Luke does that. 
Luke wants us to know that when it came to this all-important message that you cannot merit salvation, he went all the way, the Lord did. And you know, it's just a great footnote reminder to us that when you're giving the gospel to someone, finish it. Finish it. Don't give a sentimental gospel, but don't give an incomplete gospel. Get all the way to the resurrection in those interchanges. I don't mean you have all that time in one sitting. It may be an introductory and then a, and then a point one and point two. It may be a series of talks that you have with someone. But, but stay on task until they have heard that any merit they have before God in and of themselves is going to damn them. You must go all the way. You know, we, we just are so tempted to get comfortable relationships with relationships, and we will let someone enjoy all the positives of hope in Christ, but we don't tell them the negative. This is not good. In our list of non-negotiables in the church, we have one in there called an accurate view of man. Why do we put that in there? Because we want our church to affirm what the Bible says, and we want unbelievers to know what we believe. We believe what the Bible says, that mankind is corrupt from his conception. He is depraved. He's dead. He suppresses truth. He doesn't want to hear it, and God must open the heart. But how does God open the heart? Those who preach, those who proclaim, those who tell people about Christ, tell them of their need. And here is the Lord himself. He just won't stop until the sermon is done. I love that. As a preacher, I just love that. You know, some of you look at your watch. Just let me finish. <laughs> let me get to the end. I will. I mean, it's just such a great way to open this because it, it, it demonstrates a wider desperate need <clears throat> that Jesus is interested in. And so he's preaching to the needs of the entire world before you even find yourself immersed in the practical need of Capernaum and this centurion. This is the Messiah staying on task. But now you get to the desperate practical need of the story as the circumstances unfold. Verse 2, and a certain centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. So you go from Luke's reference to Jesus preaching to the needs of the entire world to Jesus' power urgently needed in this little nearby town and a certain centurion slave, and it says he was highly regarded by him. I told you that this, this is probably a houseboy. The term is probably better translated here. He has a, a, an indentured servant or slave in that day. He takes care of him. He gives him his security. He gives him his finance. And in, in return, that indentured servitude results in contract labor and even ownership. So he becomes a part of the estate. He is the property of the estate. And while that result, because poverty was so great, it was, a, it was a deal. You wanted this deal if you grew up in poverty. You wanted to be indentured as a slave or a house servant to an estate because it guaranteed your security and your family's security as you began to bore children if indeed you had a family. It was a sweet deal. And while other people treated, uh, some of those cultures treated their indentured slaves and conscripted employees horribly and terribly for which they will no doubt be judged by God, uh, rightly so. There were some situations where you, you had a sweet deal all your life from birth to death. And you have a centurion here. This is, of course, um, probably what we might say is the equivalent of a, maybe a military colonel, lieutenant colonel somewhere in there. Uh, over 50 to 100 people, you know, sort of leading them. Uh, in, in, in about 15 BC, Augustus had, uh, had built and amassed an army with 28 uh, legions. A legion was 5,000 soldiers. So you had about 150,000 or so, 145 to 150,000 soldiers, about 15 BC. And then Augustus got into some brutal and fierce battles with the Germanic tribes around 9 BC, and they, he, he lost 15,000 foot soldiers, three legions. So by the time the first century is around, he is protecting the empire with about 125 foot soldiers and a host of these mounted sort of special secret service guys. 
And in that, you broke it down into legions and you had a a cohort, which was a thousand soldiers, and you had leaders of the cohort, and within the thousand, you had a censure, a, a, a hundred centuries, they were called. And a centurion was over a hundred soldiers, or at least that's what is indicated by the history. So here you have the centurion, he's assigned to Capernaum, he has about 50 to 100 soldiers that he leads, and in his indentured estate, he has servants or slaves. One who has become very precious to him, notice he is of very precious value. He's highly regarded. This house servant, it says, is beloved by the family. He's beloved by the centurion. Faithful. Maybe been there since his birth. Maybe part of a generation of servants, part of the estate. Matthew 8, 6 indicates in Matthew's account that the servant was lying paralyzed. So he's got some sort of debilitation that is a paralyzation, but it indicates in Matthew's gospel that he is in terrifying agony. So he's in severe pain, uh, some sort of debilitating paralysis, and no doubt, the centurion being a man of means, he had probably tried every bit of the medical care, the best of medical care provided, and it has become obvious to everyone that the lad is too far gone and death is imminent. He is sick and he is on the verge of dying, your translation should read. That is the desperate situation. And you can hear it when you read it. Now, there's a delegation that is sent Notice when the centurion, verse 3, heard about Jesus. Jesus had already been in Capernaum, so he'd probably heard messages, words. He certainly heard about his healing. He certainly knew his reputation and what he claimed. That's essentially what Luke is implying. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders. And, and by the way, um, when you read Matthew's account, you'll note that Matthew records it as though, he skips all the details and just records it as though Jesus is talking directly with the centurion. And that may have happened at the very end of the story because Matthew's account says Jesus sent the centurion back home and found his servant healed that very hour or that he'd been healed that very hour. But, but in the early part of the story, Matthew just eliminates the details that Luke records. Luke records the details to show this vivid contrast between what the perspective of the delegation is and the perspective of this man. And it is absolutely riveting to note that Luke records that the centurion sends a a bevy of Jewish elders in the town. That alone comes off the page. How can it be that a Gentile, how can it be that a Gentile in a pagan town and a Gentile of military leadership has a friendship with the synagogue and a friendship with the Jews of this kind. Very, very interesting. He must have been, as we'll see in a moment, um, a man who cultivated uh, a certain kind of relationship with the Jews. And as we'll see, they took that to, to mean that it merited something before God. It's just absolutely the human heart to imagine that human achievements and human personality and human proclivity and human conduct and behavior can obligate God. But that's precisely what they imagined. Here you have this centurion sending Jewish elders. Um, This is not synagogue official. Uh, synagogue official in, in chapter 8 and chapter 13 Luke uses the formal term for synagogue official all this means this one here just means some leading Jews in the city probably leading in the community leading Jewish citizens they were probably respected they probably had an important role in the religious uh, council of the town, uh, probably community counselors. They were elders of the Jewish community, highly respected, maybe even with some civic clout. You know, I mean, they're, they're part of Israel, part of the nation. They probably did a, uh, a bit of uh, civic service and, and brought counsel to those dynamics. So they were known and respected. And even the satyrian believed they might 
have some sway with Jesus uh, because they were Jews. They knew how to get things done, and he was content to send them at first. What is shocking is that they went. (laughs) They went to run the errand on behalf of a Gentile. And we find out why when we see their appeal. Notice verse 3. They were coming to ask Jesus to come and save the life of his slave. And when they had come to Jesus, they earnestly entreated him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now, the first thing you notice is that their task was simple. It was a rescue mission. Uh, Come and save the life of this slave is terminology that means rescue the whole situation. Rescue the estate. Rescue everyone in the estate from this problem that this is going to create. So come and solve the whole dilemma is the language that is used. And verse 4 says, when they had come. Why is Luke making it so vivid? Look, he wants us to note that there's a formal approach that they make to Jesus. He doesn't just say, hey, when they found him, they told him this. He uses specific language to say, and when they walked up, this is how you could envision this. When they walked up, it was, it was Jewish leadership in that typical pretense coming through the crowd, telling everyone else who wants to get to Jesus, hey, we have a priority situation here. And this guy, when he hears it, is going to want to deal with it. He's going to want to move it to the top of his priority list. And so Luke adds the color to the story because it pictures the detailed course of their actions. So that in your mind's eye, you see a formal group. They're parting the crowd. They're making this formal display, high priority. We're important. This is a serious situation and notice they earnestly entreated him. So they come into the, to where Jesus is, and they are strongly, the, the word isn't, it could be translated exhorting him. They are strongly exhorting Jesus to take this matter as his top priority. They probably furrowed their brow. They probably took a sober tone They certainly displayed as they walked up. They didn't leave an opening for any banter. They just kept exhorting him and continuously and earnestly entreating him. That is very important staging for what they're about to say. Notice what they they use as a basis for their appeal. First, they say, he, the centurion, verse 4, is worthy for you to grant this to him. For, or because, he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. This is, we could just sort of pull out from here three things to note very, very clearly. First of all, they they believe that the centurion is deservingly good. Not just good, but deservingly good. Notice what they say. He's worthy for you to grant this to him. As if to say, God is is obligated. This is the the first problem in their understanding of the gospel and why they miss it with Jesus. Because they come as a human being saying that based upon what a man or woman does, based upon an achievement or a conduct or an attitude or an intrinsic quality, that that somehow makes me deserving of a practical perk that somehow God is obligated to me. Now, think about your life before Christ. All right, you are born in sin, so at conception, you are already an offense to the holiness of God. I'm sorry, that's the reality. You're already born a sinner by nature, a child of God's wrath by nature. So even from conception, we are worthy of God's wrath unless he's merciful and comes and calls us to himself. So then you grow up and and from the very first moments of interaction with rules at home, you're an offense to God because even as an infant or a toddler, you're starting to challenge God's rightful authority in your life. 
And you're starting to disobey, and you're starting to sneak around, and then by four or five years old, you're lying. Is this not all an offense to God? All of it's an offense to his throne, for which you can be worthy of condemnation. Then at seven or eight years old, you're, you're hiding and sneaking around and denying your guilt. And then at 10 years old, you're starting to feel pretty good about yourself among your peers, and you're full of self-righteousness. And then in your teen years, look out. All that stuff becomes industrial strength. And you're even more an offense to God. And then, let's say you got saved at 30. So all through your 20s. You don't care about God. Or maybe you were religious, so you come with gospel on your lips, but it's not in here. And you're even more an offense to God. Hypocrite. Offensive to God. And then somebody comes along and says, hey, we got this church charity you got some resources you want to give to it? Absolutely. I'll give to that. And then you go before God. You say, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm not bad. In fact, I gave to that charity, and I, I, I have been open to your people. I've been open-minded, tolerant, fairly decent citizen, helping people. And so... Even though from my conception I'm a child of wrath by nature, even though all my life I've offended you, even though I've rejected the gospel numerous times, you are obligated to me for those little good moments. That's what these men are saying about the centurion. He is a decent fellow, but they are equating that with merit before God's throne. In fact, they're going so far as to saying, you're obligated. Notice, he is worthy for you to grant this to him. The, the verb for grant this to him means to cause this to happen. So clearly Jesus has the power, they don't. Clearly his servant's going to die and Jesus is the only hope. They're admitting that, that he's the one that can only cause this thing to be solved and yet they're saying, oh, he's worthy and you're obligated. You should tackle this one, Jesus. I mean, if you're going to heal anybody, if you're going to be merciful to anybody, This guy's more savable than a rabble that's standing around you here. Man. So he's first of all deservingly good. That's their first appeal. It is most appropriate and fitting for Jesus to cause this to happen to such a worthy life. That's why they missed the gospel. No one can come to Christ and believe that God is obligated to give them mercy. He's not obligated because your parents destroyed your upbringing. He's not obligated because you're orphaned. He's not obligated because you were born with a disease. He's not obligated because life treated you poorly or no one gave you enough hugs. He's not obligated because somehow you're a really intelligent person and you achieved a doctorate before you were 30. He's not obligated because you're a great educator or good-looking or handsome or talented. He's not obligated at all. We don't deserve anything, beloved. Nothing. And these men took took liberties. And as they were sent, they were tempted to believe what they'd always believed. We're Jews. This is a Jewish rabbi. He's obligated. After all, the guy we're speaking on behalf of is a decent fellow. And notice, for he has loved our nation, or he loves our nation. What do they mean by that? He's, he has respect for the Jewish religion and customs and way of life. It doesn't mean that he's a proselyte. He's not a convert to Judaism, or that line wouldn't even be need to be said. Jesus said it, or Luke records it, and the Pharisees or these Jewish leaders said it because they are saying, look, he has an affection for your, for your people. Doesn't that gain him a little merit? He's spiritually open-minded. He's multicultural. He's tolerant of other religions. He's happy to help us. That should be good. And notice he's financially generous. It was he who built us our synagogue. By the way, the language here does not indicate that he did it under conscription from Rome or that he did it with Rome's money. The indication is that he was magnanimous enough to take from his own resources as a wealthy centurion and build their synagogue for them a beautiful place of worship. 
So here's how they process it in their mind. If a person lives a decent life, if they acknowledge the ethnic and, and uh, religious superiority of the nation of Israel, if they are open-minded, even though they might believe something completely different, so they're tolerant religiously, if they are sacrificially uh, supportive and generous in religious charities, then they should at least deserve some practical perks from God. This is disaster. That's the delegation. They totally missed it. I mean, they totally missed it. Here they are counseling Capernaum as the elders, the statesmen of the city, and they are missing it. And in the text, you you see the desperate need, you see this delegation sent, and now you come in the text to Luke's whole point, the devastated believer. The devastated believer. Look at this in verse 6. And I just, I can't get over the beginning of verse 6. Now Jesus started on his way with them. What? He went? Shouldn't he have said, you smug unbelievers. You know, I'm not going with you. I'm not even going to be seen with you. But you know, the Lord knows our frame. He knows the folly And yet he also is going to minister. And he knows there's going to be other people around that are going to see what's about to happen. And so he goes. And verse 6 says, he started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house. In other words, he was within eyesight. That's the language. The centurion sent friends. You're saying, why is he doing this? He already sent Jewish elders Why is he sending friends? Well, here's the message. The message came to him. Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. And for this reason, I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. In other words, the reason I sent the Jewish elders is because you're a Jew, and maybe you would talk to them because I'm a Gentile. I would defile you. And you're not going to come under my roof. I see that you're actually coming, and I'm starting to get frightened that you're actually going to come all the way to my door and under my roof. I can't have that. You're a prophet from God. I am a nothing. I am worthy of condemnation. I'm an outcast. I deserve nothing. Don't come. The word for trouble yourself is the word for vex. Don't, don't bring vexing agony into your ministry life by troubling yourself by getting close to a Gentile, coming under my roof, sullying your reputation, smearing your purity. Don't do that. I didn't even come to tell you myself at first because I was afraid of that. And now you're going to come to my house? I got to stop you in your tracks. Don't come any further. This is a sinful house, a sinful heritage, a sinful people, and I'm ready to accept that. I'm just saying, will you be merciful to my estate? This lad whom we love is highly precious to us. What's the first thing that he recognizes? That as a sinner, he would, he would defile Christ if the Lord didn't have any grace. He would defile him. That's the first part of great faith. Is you recognize where you're at. You, you see the purity of Christ and your own sin. You see it rightly. When I see the Spirit of God moving on someone's heart in the gospel, I know that they're starting to capture in their heart of hearts just how worthy they are of nothing and condemnation. And they know that. And it's like David in Psalm 51. The first words out of their mouth are, Lord, my sin's ever before me, and you're righteous when you judge, but I'm crying out for mercy. Be merciful to me, O God. Why does... A truly saved person cry out for mercy because a truly saved person knows that is their only hope. An extended hand of kindness from a sovereign God who could judge and has a right to judge. That's the sign of true saving faith. Not, you're obligated to me, God. Surely, I've done some good things. He has a fear of defiling God's prophet. And so he sent some friends. Go, go tell them don't come any further. 
Don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy. I don't want you in my house because you'll, you'll just defile yourself and I'll be the cause. And I didn't even consider myself worthy to come out of the house and come in your direction. So I sent Jewish elders. Now I see that you're coming. I got to stop you. And notice the next expression. This is his faith in the grace of God. But you just say the word and my servant will be healed. The literal text says, say it with a word. It's, it should be translated that way. Say it with a word. In other words, I know you've been healing people. You, you have divine authority, absolute universal authority over supernatural realms and all disease. I've been hearing about it, that you just speak a word and demons run off. You just say a word and the limbs are restored. You just speak truth and people are astounded. You just give answers and Israel's highest theological elite are stumped. I know you are the sovereign authoritative one. And so just speak it with a word. Don't come near my house. Don't, don't come to this unworthy place. But if you will be merciful, if you just said the word, done. I know you have that kind of authority. What is he saying? You are Lord. You are Lord. Absolute Lord. Absolute Without question, the Lord of the universe. You control all these things. You don't have to come and see my unworthiness. I'm admitting it. You don't have to come and threaten your reputation. You don't have to come and and stain your purity by being around me. But if you have mercy, I know you can wash this situation with mercy. You can cleanse my slave, my houseboy. What is it grounded on? What is his view of himself? Notice verse 8. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go. He goes. I say to another, come. He comes. And to my slave, do this. And he does it. There it is. There's, there's what his moment of faith is grounded on. It's grounded on his trust in the absolute lordship and sovereignty of Jesus, this prophet. And he says, look, I'm in the military. I get it. I have men who command me, and when they command me, I say, yes, sir, and I have to do it. Why? Because the entire system is dependent on it. And then they give me troops underneath me, and when I say jump, they say, sir, how high? They don't argue. No one argues. When I was in the military, it was peacetime, and we still, we were, the fear of God was put into us for obeying orders of a superior ranking officer. You learn those ranks, you learn them backward and forward, you must obey them. Can you imagine what it's like for our troops in Afghanistan in wartime? How chaotic it would be, how frightening it would be if they didn't have a structure like that where that person's command, you do it. Immediately, they are the Lord of your moment. And based upon that, this Gentile, in a military analogy, understands that Jesus Christ is the absolute authority over all of the sin, all of the consequences of sin, disease, death, demons, evil. In one moment, he sees it. And he's willing to entrust his entire moment of need to Jesus. Whatever he commands and determines, I'll obey. Beloved, that is salvation. That is real faith. That's why the narrative is put right here. You want to be a true disciple of Christ? Don't just say you want to follow Jesus. You've got to have the convictions that a true disciple by the Spirit of God has. You've got to have the fruit that is opposite of the world. You have to love Christ and demonstrate that you have a heart that's grounded on Him. How is it demonstrated in this Gentile centurion's life? Look, he doesn't see any obligation on God's part. None. I don't know how you professed Christ or when you professed Christ, but surely if you're saved, you know that God is not obligated. When you wake up every day in the grace of Christ, I hope you don't 
imagine that somehow you were more savable than somebody else. Or that somehow now that you're saved, that you can look back on that and say, well, God did it because I had some deservingly good part of me, some quality he must have seen. Or that somehow I obligated him to a practical perk, a life of good things, because actually I go to church and I do good things for God. None of that. Real saving faith knows God is not obligated. I can merit nothing before God. Well, dramatic finish. (laughs) When Jesus heard this testimony from the centurion, he was stunned. That is not only a free translation, but an accurate one. There's only two places where Jesus is said to be amazed. He's amazed by Israel's unbelief, and he's amazed by this centurion's faith, great faith. And he marveled at it and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I tell you, not even in Israel have I seen or witnessed or found such open obedience and submission, such open belief, such pure entrustment, great faith, a willingness to believe that he's nothing and to cry out for the Son of Man for hope and a willingness to take it as God gives it because he deserves nothing. That's real faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, or Matthew's gospel says, perhaps by now the centurion would have been right out there talking with him or you know, yelling it across the, the compound. Um, he was sent back, and of course the servants were sent back. And that very hour, Matthew's gospel says, the boy was healed. And Luke includes that he... They found the slave in good health. In other words, he was examined. He wasn't just getting up and saying he was healed. He was examined and he was fully restored. No paralysis. Not at death's door. It's just such a remarkable contrast. And um, the people would have then seen the dividing. Someone who believes they're obligated loses out. I read it to you in Romans 10. Why, if the Jews had all the knowledge, did it not benefit them for salvation? Because they tried to gain righteousness on their own. You can't gain righteousness on your own. It's like Paul in Philippians 3. I had all of this stuff in my gain column and I was... Of the, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, fully righteous, adherent to the law. That was my gain column. That's what I took before God and said, yeah, you're obligated to me. I deserve it. I, I worked. I did it. And he said, when I saw Christ and I knew who I really was and I knew I couldn't be that righteous, I trashed all of that in my gain column and I gained Christ by faith alone. And so that I don't have a righteousness that is derived on my own, but it, it comes by faith. Christ's righteousness then covers the believer, forgives the sin, no more guilt, so that when the Lord looks at the sinner, though we're still not fully redeemed and we still sin, he looks through the righteousness of his son and sees that it covers us and he sees us as righteous. If you see yourself as righteous or God is obligated, or any of your goodness is deserving of God's personal attention. You can't possibly trust in that and be saved. And if you're trusting in that, you're not a Christian. You must come to Christ and stumble over the death of self and the embracing of Christ alone for salvation. Michael Card wrote it in a song years ago. It seems today the scandal on offends no one at all. That's the the Greek word for the gospel's offense. It is a scandal on. You must stumble over it. It seems today the scandal on offends no one at all. The image we present can be stepped over. 
Could it be that we're like the others long ago? Will we ever learn that all who come must stumble? You must stumble over yourself. You must die to self. Oh, the centurion, he didn't send those guys with that message. He said, I'm unworthy. They took it upon themselves to obligate God to the centurion. How ironic how they missed it. Beloved, today don't miss it. Lord, thank you for this narrative, this clear contrast in this precious story. Thank you for your mercy in walking with those yokels and coming to that place where you could demonstrate your mercy and expose the heart of a centurion who just knew he wasn't worthy of it. Thank you for showing the contrast between those elders of the city who missed it because they, they believed in ethnic superiority. They believed that they obligated you by goodness, good deeds, righteousness of their own superior heirs. And they completely misinterpreted the centurion's heart because they were tempted to imagine that that's the only way to get to you and to your saving grace and mercy is by human merit. Thankfully, we see in this, this military leader a broken heart, a devastated heart. Thank you for demonstrating the humility, the fear of offending you that is in a true believer. May we never give a sentimental gospel. May we always give the, the desperate need. May we always proclaim the condemnation that is certain if someone does not believe. May we always help people turn to the scriptures to see just how black the human heart is. May we always point to their failure to be righteous and show them how they're headed for destruction if they don't believe in you. But let us always complete the task and point to the hope that is in you that if someone will come by faith alone, trusting in your work of redemption on the cross and your sacrificial death to atone for sin and your covering righteousness in all of it to erase our guilt. Help us to give that message and then break people's hearts through it. Lord, we worship you for your mercy. We pray that we'd give a clear gospel because of these things. In Jesus' name, our Savior. Amen.